Why don't we open in a word of prayer? Lord, we're so thankful for this time together. As with any topical message, Lord, I in particular am cognizant of the need, and I pray that every word that I speak today would be in accordance with your word and its principles, and that the people would receive your word, Lord. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this precious people, this precious flock, and just uh, Todd and the dear people here. We're so thankful to you, Lord, in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. So the topic of race, as the world calls it, although I prefer personally to use the word ethnicity, can be a rather controversial one these days, simply because it has the potential to deeply impact a person's identity. Our topical message today is entitled Skin Deep, Ethnicity and the Believer's Identity, and I'm here to tell you about what truly matters with respect to our identity, and to tip my hand a bit, the answer is not our skin color or ethnicity. So with that said, let's start by taking a look at what the Bible says about ethnicity. Now, our first point is, there are different ethnicities. Now, one quick note, when I use the word ethnicity, I'm referring to the common dictionary definition, which is of or relating to large groups of people classed according to common racial, national, tribal, religious, linguistic, or cultural origin or background. In other words, a distinct people group. And on that note, our first point should be patently obvious. There are different ethnicities. This is true throughout the Old and New Testament times. We see Jews, Egyptians, Gentiles, Ethiopians, Greeks, Romans, even wise men from the East who visited the baby Jesus. This is true today. We see it all over the world and America. And it will still be true at the end of history. We see that in Revelation numerous times, such as verses chapter 10, verse 11, Chapter 11, verse 9, chapter 13, verse 7, chapter 14, verse 6, chapter 17, verse 15, where again and again in Revelation, as we see the end times unfold, we see different peoples, tribes, languages, and nations. Again, I think most of this ought to be patently obvious, but you might be surprised by how some people try to take the matter-of-fact reality of different ethnicities, and then they try to extend and contort that concept to some pretty bizarre or even inappropriate at times ends. For example, there are some racist Christian groups who try to use the descriptive history of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 to try to justify some kind of non-existent prescriptive biblical command either in favor of ethnic segregation or ethnic intermarriage. Well, the truth is that the Tower of Babel is about God humbling early humans who are trying to make themselves great and reach up to God in the heavens. And if we know anything about the Bible and the gospel, we know that trying to get to God via our own efforts and work is an impossible task. So God did choose to confuse the languages and disperse the peoples at Babel, And those distinct people groups will indeed persist in some form or another through the end of history. But those facts have nothing to do with segregation or intermarriage or any kind of non-existent biblical command in that way. After all, using some descriptive counterexamples, we see Moses marrying a Cushite woman from Africa in Numbers 12. And for speaking against that marriage, God strikes Moses' sister Miriam with leprosy. And in Matthew 1, verse 5, we see that in the genealogical line of Jesus, we have both Rahab and Ruth, two foreign Gentile women. Even more than that, however, we have clear biblical commands that we'll see shortly, which show us how we're supposed to treat other Christians of different ethnicities. Now, on the flip side, I've also seen people take the matter-of-fact reality of different ethnicities and then try to create some kind of entire ethnicity-centered philosophy of ministry based on that. Now, the argument typically goes something like this. We need to celebrate and emphasize and focus on the importance of ethnic diversity here on earth because God is a creative God, and the body of Christ has many parts. And when you look at a picture of heaven in Revelation 7-9, you see people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So obviously, if ethnicity persists even in heaven, it must be important. So why aren't we acknowledging how important it is on earth, too? Well, let me tell you, there are, I believe, several problems with that philosophy of ministry or that type of interpretation. First, yes, God is indeed a creative God. We know that. After all, he created the platypus. You know, a very fascinating animal if you look at it, but it looks kind of funny and you never would expect it. 
but it goes beyond what Scripture says if we try to assume that simply because God is creative and created different ethnicities, that that somehow means we ought to focus or elevate ethnicity any more than we ought to focus or elevate the color of our eyes or hair. Now, as we'll see shortly, Scripture does have plenty to say about how we ought to think about things like ethnicity and physical appearance. And again, to tip my hand a little bit, the Bible does not seek to emphasize or elevate their importance. But second, when you see the term the body of Christ in Scripture, it generally means the entire group of believers everywhere. When we talk about the diversity of the body of Christ or the body of Christ having many parts, if you take a look at the key passages on that concept, such as, for example, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and following, and Romans 12, 4 and following, and Ephesians 4, 11 and following, and I urge you to take a look at those passages at your convenience, you'll see that the focus is actually on different function and giftedness in the body of Christ and not specifically on ethnicity or physical appearance. Third, as we said earlier, Ethnicity does indeed persist even to the end of the age, and we see in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, even the worshipers in heaven uh, worshiping in that way, but their differing ethnicity is not the main point of those verses. Let's take a look at them. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, as we read that passage, the focus of that passage is clearly on the worship of God and the Lamb. And the fact that in His incredible grace, He chose to save a multitude without partiality from the uttermost ends of the earth. Now, the fact that the worshipers are of different ethnicities here is really almost like a matter-of-fact side comment. Regardless, this reference certainly is not a justification to emphasize or elevate the importance of ethnicity or physical appearance. And in fact, if you look carefully, the passage actually cuts the opposite way. Because all of these people of different ethnicities are doing the exact same thing. They're all clothed in white robes. They all have palm branches in their hands. And they're all crying out in worship with identical words. So after the primary focus of the worship of the Lamb in this passage, I would say the secondary focus of this passage is on uniformity and unity in the body of Christ and not on the specific differences in their ethnicities. So those are two ways that people tend to go too far to either the, to the right or to the left on this first point, which is the plain reality that there are different ethnicities. Now let's move on to our second point. There is one Christian people group. There is one Christian people group or, or family or kind or, or genos, as it says in the Greek. We Christians are one people group. We may have various differences on the surface, but fundamentally, we are one. We are united. We are together. That is the emphasis in Scripture time and time again. Now, let me prove this point to you from Scripture. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, my own pastor, John MacArthur, delivered a great sermon that addressed this concept on July 2nd of 2017, entitled, Making Christ Attractive in a Pagan World. And I certainly urge it to anyone. Uh, but it says in this scripture, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Now, the Greek terms for race and priesthood and, and nation, they're all singular terms, one race. Not dozens of races, not dozens of priesthoods or 20 nations. We're talking about one race as Christians. So it doesn't matter what we look like. We're all bound together in a foundation of Jesus Christ and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I believe 1 Peter 2.9 would be sufficient to establish the point that there is only one Christian people group, but there are even more verses in case you aren't convinced yet. And again, this is part of what makes this so clear from Scripture. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, 
Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Again, we see this beautiful concept of unity in Christ. We are all one spirit, baptized into one body, no matter what our ethnicity might be. Jews and Greeks drink of the exact same Holy Spirit. And the clear and obvious message from the verse is that ethnicity is simply not important compared to our unity in the Spirit. Moving on, let's look at Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Think about how radical this statement is. This statement, especially coming from a Hebrew among Hebrews like Paul, he's saying that whether you're a Jew or Greek, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. You are spiritual heirs to God's promises to Abraham right alongside any believing Jew. Now, for a Jew in that day and age to say that Greek Gentiles could be Abraham's offspring is completely unthinkable. And yet Paul says here that we are all one in Christ Jesus who tears down every ethnic barrier. Christians are one. They are united. Finally, let's consider Colossians 3, 11 through 14. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the start of this passage is very similar to the last passage we saw in Galatians. There is no more Greek or Jew. It's just not important anymore. There's no more circumcised or uncircumcised, or in other words, no more viewing as clean or unclean. There's no more barbarian or Scythian, or in other words, uncivilized brutes and outsiders, which is how some might see some of the new converts in the church at that time. That was kind of one of the concerns. But for those who are in Christ, there is only Christ who is all and in all. We see that from the perfect scripture about what truly matters, where our emphasis should be, and it should be on Christ and on our unity as Christians and not on ethnicity. Now, the remainder of this passage that I read to you is also fascinating because as a result of this unity, particularly relating to things like ethnicity and social class, but as a result of this unity, we need to be kind, humble, meek, patient with one another. And and this is directed toward all Christians, whether it's an elitist Greek who doesn't want to associate with anyone he considers to be beneath him, or, or a devout Jew who views Gentiles and their food as unclean. It's directed toward people who might be suspicious of outsiders with a violent reputation. And it's also toward those outsiders who are also trying to get used to a different culture. And when people fail at that, when complaints arise, as they inevitably do because we are all still sinners, even if those complaints might have validity to them, Paul's call is to still forgive each other, to work it out, pointing out that as the Lord has forgiven us, we must forgive. And that's the same idea that we see in the parable of the unforgiving servant from Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. And and just to describe that briefly, it's right after where Jesus instructs us about the importance of church discipline, he then tells a parable about a king forgiving his servant's debt that is worth, in today's money, billions and billions of dollars. But then that servant refuses to forgive his fellow servant's debt that was worth thousands of dollars and even attacks him. For that, the unforgiving servant is handed over to the torturers until he can pay the debt, which is basically an impossible, limitless debt. And by the way, thousands of dollars is still a significant sum in today's money, and yet we're even to forgive that, even though the debt obviously pales in comparison to the effectively infinite debt forgiven by the king. So this Colossians passage It closes by saying that above all these things, we as Christians united in Christ, regardless of our ethnicity or our social class, must put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And that leads us to our next point, our third point, which is to love impartially. So we started with there are different ethnicities. We just talked about how there is one Christian race, one Christian people group. 
And now we take that reality and move into our third point, to love impartially. That's the implication that we just saw in Colossians 3. As Christians, we put on love, which binds us together in perfect harmony, regardless of our ethnicity and regardless of where we might have come from. So how do we put on love? How do we do that? Do we just go out and love people? I mean, without anything more, that kind of sounds a little bit broad or maybe even a little bit vague, potentially. So how do we put on love? How do we demonstrate love? Because right now, one concern is that people might become confused about what that really means, to love someone. After all, in the world, we have people telling us that love means doing exactly what the other person wants exactly when they want it. But we don't love our children by giving them candy whenever they ask. You've got other people out there in the world that are telling us that love means affirming the other person's life choices. But we just can't do that when those life choices are condemned or opposed in God's word. Still others, even some Christians at times, are telling us that love means supporting the other person's chosen causes. Now, there's nothing at all with humbly, nothing wrong at all with humbly asking for help. But when you get to the point of demands and expectations and ultimatums, when you get to the point of saying, if you don't support my chosen cause, well, you're no longer my friend, or or even worse, you're no longer a good Christian, that's when we move from love into legalistic conscience binding. Ouch, right? That's that's, that's hard. Now, we're going to return to this concept as it pertains to ethnicity in a little while, but for now, I want to get back to focus on what love means here. Now, I can happily report that the scripture gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And so the Bible instructs us clearly about how we're supposed to love believers from different ethnicities. So let me read for you James 2, 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This is very specific instruction from the scriptures about how we're to love others. We're to love others as ourselves, and we're not to show partiality. Again, that's our third point, to love impartially. We are not to selfishly subordinate other people beneath ourselves. Instead, we are to love them as we love ourselves. And in fact, elsewhere in Philippians 2.3, we even know that we're to consider others as more significant than ourselves. And as if that isn't hard enough, we're also not to show partiality in our love, or else we are clearly and unambiguously in sin, as it says in James 2, 8 and 9. Now, the passage in James 2 gives a specific example of showing partiality toward a rich man over a poor man, but that does not mean that we are off the hook when it comes to ethnicity. And that's because I've already shown you the verses that say we're all one Christian people group, regardless of our social class or our ethnicity. And I would add that the command not to show partiality applies to every superficial external factor. And we see this very clearly in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. My friend and fellow elder Mike Riccardi preached a fantastic sermon on this passage on May 21, 2017. The title is A New Creation in Christ. And if you haven't heard it yet, I strongly urge you to listen to it because he's really one of the most brilliant young theologians and preachers around. But to regard no one according to the flesh in this passage means exactly what we've been saying. We must not allow superficial external factors such as ethnicity or beauty or clothing, or social class, to affect how we view or treat others. We are to love impartially, no matter what those external characteristics might be. There is to be no racism in the church, and if there is, we need to confront it. We don't show favoritism to the people who look like us, to the beautiful people, or to the cool hipsters, even, or or to the wealthy, or the people who can help us climb the next rung of the social ladder. You know, there's an old saying, you know, I'm colorblind. I just don't see color or ethnicity. Now, over the years, especially recently, that saying has been subject to a bit of ridicule, particularly by our increasingly race-conscious and even race-emphasizing society. You know, and on one level, I can understand some skepticism. 
After all, if you're really pressed to give a physical description of someone, nearly all of us are going to be able to say whether a person had lighter or darker skin, or rounder or narrower eyes, or what color and type of hair they had. If not, then you'd better hope you never witness a crime, because you're going to have to give a description of what happened. Or, or even, if you better hope you never have to send someone to meet someone else, to, you know, if you can't give that description. But putting that nuance aside, the goal, the ideal, the concept of being colorblind when it comes to ethnicity, of not seeing or regarding someone according to the flesh, is actually a noble scriptural goal, as it says in this verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. I think it's also important to note that impartiality is the very heart of the Lord. Let me read to you Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. Right after Peter is freed from the Old Testament dietary laws and then brings the gospel to the Gentiles, he formerly saw as unclean. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So we see that in the church age, God shows no partiality among the nations. So yet again, the scriptures are very clear on this topic, on the importance of impartiality. And frankly, I've seen a lot of very poor attempts by so-called social justice advocates to try to call attention to this and remedy this. And some of these uh, social justicians, as my friend Daryl Harrison likes to call them, have decided that instead, let's use a bunch of broad brush accusations. That's, that's the best way to call out unbiblical ethnic partiality. Now, I look around this church and I see a multi-ethnic church and I praise the Lord for that. And, you know, this multi-ethnic church came about due to the preaching of the word of God and due to the, the, the loving, lavishly loving, impartial love of your leadership. Those are the reasons this church is a multi-ethnic church. It's not due to programs or initiatives or anything like that. And praise the Lord for that. I love it. Grace Community Church is the same way. Pastor John has just preached the word for 50 years and a multi-ethnic church has arisen. But a lot of people these days, they instead prefer, let's go with these broad-based accusations, like, oh, hey, wow, this, there's a lot of white people in here. Well, all you white people need to repent of your white supremacy and your, your white privilege and your white stuff. You know, that, that, that's, that's a common attitude that we're seeing more and more in the world and even in the church. But accusations like that are the complete opposite of helpful. And you know you would never tolerate or stand for that if that were directed at a different ethnic group, right? That's just not, it's not appropriate. If you have a blanket accusation like that, they result in way too many false positives and way too much collateral damage. But the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it should be wielded like a scalpel with care and not like a clumsy, ham-fisted bludgeon. And few things result in a more indignant response, or at the very least, a, a relatively dismissive response, than a false accusation. As I stand before you here today, thanks only to the Holy Spirit and with praise to God, I can honestly say that my conscience is clear in the area of ethnic partiality. Now, I have no interest into going into detail about why that is because a laundry list of why I, I don't feel convicted in that area could come off like pharisaical virtue signaling, but ultimately, my conscience on this matter is a matter for the Lord to examine and to interrogate. I'm not saying I'm perfect on this or any issue, of course. And I have no doubt that the Lord will continue to expose and convict me over the course of time about many ways that I might fall short here and elsewhere. But as of right now, my conscience is clear, which is a good thing as we will be taking communion today. And Christians are indeed capable of maintaining a clear conscience in certain areas or towards certain people. And in fact, the scriptures plainly state that. I'm going to give you a number of verses here. I would urge you to write them down and look at them later. But we see this notion of maintaining a clear conscience and how that's a good thing in scripture in Acts 23.1, in Acts 24.16, in Romans 9.1, 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, 2 Corinthians 1.12, 1 Timothy 1.19, 2 Timothy 1.3, and 1 Peter 3.16. All of these are references to the importance and the possibility of keeping a clear conscience. Now, I do think self-examination in these areas can sometimes be very helpful and profitable, 
but it crosses the line into presumption and trying to be the Holy Spirit in another person's life when certain social justicians insist that people are or should feel guilty of this or that particular specific sin. At the end of the day, 1 Corinthians 4, 5 tells us that the hidden things and the purposes of the heart are for the Lord to reveal and disclose and not for others to unlovingly assume or believe the worst. I've actually found that rather than finger-pointing accusations, one of the most helpful tools when it comes to the area of ethnic partiality and examine yourself is a simple but visceral heart question, and that is, what's your heart attitude toward inter-ethnic marriage? Now, the answers might run the gamut between overt enthusiasm to, of course it's fine and that should be obvious, to a more hesitant, well, I'm not sure if that's my preference, to a finger-wagging, that's an unwise course of action, to even revulsion and utter rejection, potentially. And my challenge to you is that if your internal reactions toward the topic of inter-ethnic marriage run toward the latter negative ones that I described, you might need to do some heart work before the Lord. Now, I'm not saying single people aren't allowed to have certain aesthetic preferences for dating, but at the same time, if there's an internal recoiling at the notion of getting to know someone of a different skin color or different ethnicity than yourself, there might be something in your heart there that's something other than an innocent preference. If you simply cannot imagine marrying one of the billions and billions of people in this world who are of, of a different ethnicity than you, you might want to ask yourself why that is. Because even in the area of Christian liberty, which is where the concept of dating would fall, impartiality is so important that the Word of God teaches us that wisdom calls us to be impartial in all of our judgments. We see that in James 3.17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And we also see this concept in Proverbs 24.23, the book of wisdom, Proverbs these also are sayings of the wise. To show partiality in judgment is not good. On the flip side, if you're a parent, and if you're coming up with all kinds of reasons why your son or daughter shouldn't be spending time with that gal or guy from a different ethnicity, you might need to do a heart check. Warren Webster, a former missionary to Pakistan in the 1950s and 60s, was once asked, what if your daughter falls in love with a Pakistani while you're on the mission field and wants to marry him? He replied forcefully, the Bible would say, better a Christian Pakistani than a godless white American. Wow, right? But that's, that's real talk, right? We know that's true even from the verses we've been talking about. It's clear. Sadly, I have to tell you, having ministered primarily alongside single young adults for 13 years and officiating a number of inter-ethnic marriages, as has John MacArthur, by the way, one problem I've observed is that a number of professing believers don't seem to share Missionary Webster's clear-headed thinking on this. And to be candid, my perception is that it's often worst in the Asian community. I have a number of friends who've been really hurt by this, by Asian parents refusing to accept anyone who isn't Asian or sometimes even anyone who isn't in that specific Asian nationality, such as Chinese or Korean. I want to be as clear as I can on this, out of love, biblical love, Parents who object to an adult Christian child's marriage to another Christian primarily on the basis of his or her ethnicity, those parents are in sin and need to repent. Because you cannot claim to be loving impartially when you're holding back from another believer your love and approval and blessing simply because he or she is a different ethnicity or from a different country. And having seen the harm that comes from this, having seen the great disruption to unity in the body of Christ and, in, and to family, when the parents are professing believers about this, I'm personally of the view that sin like this is so major that it ought to be escalated to church discipline because we know from Scripture that's how serious unity in the body is. So that's our third point, to love impartially. It sounds easy, just love impartially. But due to the fall and the existence of sin, we're never going to love one another with perfect impartiality. And even when we try, the secular world system is out there doing its best to attack and corrupt believers. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time because this topic of ethnicity in the United States today, right now, is one that's filled with passion and emotion, with real hurts and perceived slights, with defensiveness and, frankly, with offensiveness at times. We have slogans and buzzwords like social justice warriors versus the alt-right 
or white privilege and reverse racism, or black lives matter, blue lives matter, all lives matter, and on and on and on. We have these slogans and buzzwords. And so the question is, as Christians, how are we to process this? How are we to make sense of all of it? As always, having a biblical worldview is so key. We've already established that there are different ethnicities, but that there is one Christian people group, and that in unity we are to love one another impartially, regardless of our external factors. That's the basic scriptural framework on the topic of ethnicity and the believer's identity. Now we're moving to the broader topic of ethnicity, the believer's identity and the outside world. And more scriptural questions and concepts necessarily come into the discussion. And as we examine a number of these worldly discussions about ethnicity, we see that many of them seem to center around the concept of social justice that we've already talked about a little bit. So we'll start with the rather basic question, what is justice? As always, we go to the scripture for the answer. Justice is praised in scripture. It is a good thing. God loves it. Kings are called to uphold it and not to pervert it or use it to oppress people. And the people are told to observe it. There are hundreds of references to justice in the Old Testament, often in the context of deciding a criminal or legal case under the civil law of ancient Israel, or receiving a result that is right and proper is another common usage. One basic meaning for justice in Hebrew is to treat people fairly regardless of ethnicity or social class on the merits of the individual case. People committing the same crime would receive the same penalty. One noted theologian uh, recently defined justice, doing justice as following the rule of law, showing impartiality, paying what you promised, not stealing, not swindling, not taking bribes, and not taking advantage of the taking advantage of the weak because they are too uninformed or unconnected to stop you. I think that's a very helpful concept as we talk about this notion of what is justice. In the New Testament, even when we use a broader set of possible Greek words for the concept of justice, there are actually quite a bit fewer references. By and large, these New Testament references to justice revolve around divine judgments or vengeance or being righteous and impartial and keeping the commands of God. Now, that last comment is very important because justice is in every sense a moral issue. It's a moral issue. And anytime you're deciding a moral question like that, your answer is going to be determined based on whether or not something conforms to the word of God. So perhaps a good working definition of biblical justice could be the impartial application of God's law. Now, it's important to define terms because worldly discussions often seek to redefine terms in ways that suit its own purposes. We talked about social justice. Well, one noted social justice person, Joe Fagan, who's a Harvard PhD, the former president of the American Sociological Association and an author of dozens of books on ethnicity and racism, one of which was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, he defined social justice this way. As I see it, Social justice requires resource equity, fairness, and respect for diversity, as well as the eradication of existing forms of social oppression. Social justice entails a redistribution of resources from those who have unjustly gained them to those who justly deserve them. It seems clear that only a decisive redistribution of resources and decision-making power can ensure social justice and authentic democracy. So that's a window into what the leading academics and thought leaders in the secular world believe social justice is. And I want to be clear, this decisive redistribution of resources and decision-making power, that definition of social justice from the world, stands in stark contrast to the biblical definition of justice, which we just talked about, which emphasizes the impartial application of God's law in every area of life. And that's a very key point. Biblical justice can indeed be about opposing the sin of partiality, including ethnic partiality, and especially inside the church. But biblical justice is not solely about that. It's not solely about opposing racism. It's not solely about social justice, whatever that means for that matter. Again, it can be partly about those things, but biblical justice is a comprehensive concept. That's because if biblical justice is the impartial application of God's law, well, God's law covers a very broad sweep of topics. 
Biblical justice is about punishing the evildoer and the violent man from Romans 13.4. It's about understanding the truth from our Savior in Matthew 26.52 that he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. It's about protecting the innocent and the weak, especially from lawbreakers in Romans 13.3. It's about submitting to authority, even harsh and oppressive authority, such as under the mad Roman emperor Nero from 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Biblical justice values the importance of work from 2 Thessalonians 3.10, especially if you want to eat. It tells us that one of our life goals, one of our ambitions, should be to live quietly and mind our own affairs in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Tells us to pray for those in authority so we can live peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified lives in 1 Timothy 2 1 and 2. And it tells us not to associate with those given to change or with rebels from Proverbs 24 21. That would be unwise, according to this proverb. It would necessarily encompass the biblical understandings of marriage, of divorce, of family, and of gender. And biblical justice absolutely hates partiality, and corruption. And we've already discussed the importance of that uh, ethnic impartiality, meaning we should, not have the, we should have the same standards for people of one ethnicity that we do for people of a different ethnicity. And we should not have differing weights and measures, as it says in Proverbs 20, 10. That's a long list already. And there are many, many more that we could add because, again, God's word is so vast but hopefully I've been able to make the point, which is that biblical justice is a comprehensive concept and is about far more than just ethnicity or what some people would call social justice. But there's another interesting question about biblical justice, and in particular about biblical justice in the church age, and that question is, must we do justice? And I'm going to break that question down into two parts, the church corporately and believers individually. As you may know, Grace Community Church, and I believe this church as well, teaches that the church is a unique spiritual organism designed by Christ, made up of all born-again believers in this present church age. The church is distinct from Israel, and the promises God has made to Israel will be fulfilled in Israel, and the promises God has made to the church will be fulfilled in the church. So first, let's consider the church as a corporate entity. Must we do justice? Well, when you look at the New Testament commands to the church today, they are of a very different type and character than the commands to Israel. The church is called to make disciples, and its obligations can be categorized as ministering to and equipping those inside of the church and bringing the gospel to those outside of the church. There's actually a great danger in trying to assume the church has any other obligations because as soon as you do, the entire disciple-making mission of the church gets diverted. Whenever you think it's the church's job to transform or redeem the culture, as some people say, or to eliminate world poverty, or even to eliminate ethnic hatred, or to enact social justice, it's just a short step to devoting less of your time, money, and energy to missions and equipping the saints and more time and energy and money toward projects like funding soup kitchens or starting hospitals or even perhaps helping to get the right people elected. Now, these goals might be fine and good things in and of themselves, but they are not the mission of the church, at least as we see it in Scripture. And whenever the church has tried to do things like this throughout history, such as the Emperor Constantine in the Roman Empire or the early Roman Catholic Church or the Puritans in America... Those efforts have always and inevitably failed due to our sin. Things might have gotten better temporarily, but the culture was never ultimately redeemed, and sadly, the gospel was inevitably, over time, compromised. Now, some amillennialists and postmillennialists might argue that projects such as eliminating world poverty and racism are implied missions for the church, but I just don't see that in Scripture, and I'd be eager to have a conversation with anyone who can show that to me from Scripture if you disagree. But as confident premillennialists, we know that only God can solve these problems and not the church. Only God will make all things new and right in his perfect timing. Jesus will come when he will come, and then he will accomplish all things in his power and glory as we see in the book of Revelation. So without any explicit commands to the church on this topic, Does that mean we Christians are somehow off the hook when it comes to doing justice? 
Well, no, because there are indeed scriptural commands directed to individual Christians that applied here. For example, Matthew 7.12, the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, you also do to them. For this is the law and the prophets. It's a fair bet that all of us want justice for ourselves, so we would then also be called to do justice to others. There's also Luke 6.36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. And Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. And we also have Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we have being merciful and doing good works and doing good to one another. And in that last case, we're even told to give priority to fellow Christians. And although none of these are precisely the same thing as doing justice, the concept is very similar at this point. Interestingly, however, these verses have all tended to be rather general and broad in nature, more conceptual than detailed. And remember that when we think of the meaning of biblical justice, it's the impartial application of God's law, which covers a very broad sweep of issues. So we have broad and general commands regarding a broad and general category of biblical justice. And I think this observation begs our next and final question. How should we do justice? And in particular, how should we do it on this topic of ethnicity that we've been discussing? For a lot of us, it sure would seem easier if we could just go down a checklist and have it spelled out for us. But in light of the fact that, as we just talked about, the direction we have is broad and general, we're going to have to figure out much of this as we live out our Christian lives. How do we decide how we do justice? Well, how do we decide anything else in our lives? What friends we should make? What job we should take? What church we should join? Who we should marry? How we should spend the money and time that God has given us stewardship over? The commands on doing justice do not give us specific direction as to the time, place, or manner of how we do it. And that makes all of this a matter of our Christian liberty and stewardship. The concept of stewardship is expressed well in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, where three slaves are held accountable for what they did with the five, two, and one talent of money that their master had entrusted to them. Similarly here, how are we to spend the time and money that God has given us should we devote any of it to work for justice, say, or even social justice? Well, let's address the low-hanging fruit first. Even just going about our normal lives, we have encounters and occurrences every day that implicate the broad issue of justice. You buy something and the cashier undercharges you or gives you too much money back. Someone cuts you off and makes, let's just call it, an unfriendly gesture toward you on the freeway. You receive terrible service at a restaurant. A coworker shares an off-color or perhaps even racist joke with you. Your spouse snaps at you for something you didn't do. Your kids don't do their chores. A homeless guy asks you for some money. The police pull you over for speeding or even maybe for no reason that you can immediately think of. Each of these encounters is an opportunity to act with personal integrity, to respond with Christian love, and in doing so, you will be doing justice in that situation, even if perhaps only in a small way. Beyond that, as we discussed, we have a call to do justice within the church. This will be typically done via the church discipline process described in Matthew 18. If you see sinful injustice from another church member, you can go to that person and lovingly confront him or her, and prayerfully that person will repent. And then the injustice is remedied with a seeking and granting of forgiveness and potentially some form of restitution as well if there was a tangible wrong. If that person refuses to repent, the church discipline process is typically escalated until repentance occurs or that person is put out of the church at the fourth step of church discipline. And even though that's tragic and we pray for reconciliation to happen in the future, after that happens, the church is purified and hopefully can retain its good testimony. I mean, to have a racist church would be a repugnant, awful testimony on Jesus Christ. Amen? All of this is outlined in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Now, beyond that in the church, another thing to consider is whether you're meeting your existing responsibilities. If you're married, are you caring for and loving your spouse and any children you might have? Are you being devoted to your family? Because those are the closest earthly relationships that we have. You certainly want to be doing justice to those relationships. Are you involved in your local church, not forsaking the assembling of the saints and submitting to your leaders and showing them honor and practicing the one another's faithfully with other church members? 
and thus proving to the world and validating our testimony that we are indeed Christians by that extravagant love that we have for one another. Certainly you want to do justice in your local church as we just talked about. If you're working, whether you're inside or outside of the home, are you being excellent at work, doing your job for the eyes of the Lord and not the eyes of men, and being a good witness to everyone who sees you? Certainly we want to be acting in and doing justice in that manner. Are you involved in evangelism, bringing the gospel to our neighbors, whether here or uh, in Los Angeles or abroad in the world? Now, if you're doing those things and you're meeting those priorities, and God bless you, you're doing a fantastic job already. And, and anything more than that is gravy on top. So pray, search the word, seek counsel, and make a decision. There have been great Christians who have accomplished incredible things on top of their other commitments. I think of Christian athletes who climb to the very top of their sports, giving glory to God all the way. I think of Christian businessmen who started some incredible parachurch and other ministries that bless millions of people around the world. I think of a man like William Wilberforce, who was a member of the British Parliament before God radically saved him, and at which time he became one of the key forces behind the abolition of slavery in the United Kingdom. And by the way, since people both inside and outside of the church sometimes talk about slavery being in the Bible, you need to know that hereditary ethnicity-based slavery that originated from kidnapping or man-stealing has always been a horrific crime under God's law. And everyone who willingly participated in that institution of such as, one example, American slavery, was guilty of dire and abominable sin. Regardless, as you process through your priorities, as you think about how you might want to be merciful or do good works or do justice, it may be that some of you ultimately decide that you want to help in the idea of ethnic partiality and praise the Lord if so. And again, what that looks like could be vastly different for one person compared to another person. Now, in the interest of time, I'll just say that I did a Sundays in July seminar for my church in 2017 on this topic, and the second half, starting around minute 51, dealt with specific suggestions, suggestions on how to and how not to do justice in the context of this whole social justice debate. But given the time, I think I'll have to stick what I've said on Christian liberty and stewardship of the limited resources of time, money, and energy that God has given us. In a sense, this will often be dictated by our own deepest convictions, our own calling, if you will. I know women who are passionate about fighting human trafficking. God bless them. I know men who are passionate about helping addicts and the homeless on Skid Row. Praise the Lord. I know people who are passionate in even their honoring of law enforcement. That's absolutely a part of biblical justice or under Romans 13.7. Many of us at Grace Community Church love foreign missions or Children's Hunger Fund, which both feeds hungry children and gives them the gospel. Praise the Lord. I know all kinds of people who are passionate about saving the lives of the unborn. Hallelujah, right? So the question to you is, what are you passionate about? If you already know and you're already doing it, praise the Lord. If you're trying to figure it out, that's okay too. Think about it, pray about it, search the word, seek counsel from the godly people who know you best, and then go do what the Lord calls you to do by doing justice in your faithful, everyday Christian walk and by doing justice within the local church and by attending to your most important responsibilities and then by doing what your conscience calls you to do in your own Christian liberty and stewardship. It's fair for your pastor to call you to faithful attendance at church because Hebrews 10.25 commands us not to forsake the assembling together. It's fair for your pastor to call you to sacrificial giving since that's what we see in 2 Corinthians 8. But there's no one auditing your budget or specifying dollars and cents or percentages because that's for you to figure out. Again, with help and counsel and prayer and searching of the word. And just as that's true for giving, it's also true for the stewardship of the other resources God has given you, like your time. So yes, be compassionate and merciful. Love the people around you, no matter what their skin color might be, what their ethnicities might be. Don't harden your hearts or close your eyes to problems that you might be able to address. But we should also remember Galatians 5, the second half of verse 1, I think is especially pertinent. Keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And so don't let anyone try to legalistically bind your conscience by insisting you need to spend your time, money, energy, or resources the way that they think you ought to do, or that you need to arrange your priorities the way that other people might be choosing to arrange theirs. You are free in Christ, and praise the Lord for that freedom, amen? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's pray. 
Lord, we just thank you for the clarity of your word on this topic of ethnicity and this topic of what it means to do justice. And we thank you even for the liberty that we have in Christ. We're just so grateful to you, Lord, uh, just for that freedom. And it can be uncomfortable sometimes, that freedom. Sometimes we might be wondering what we should do. What, how, how should we do these good works that you have called us to? And Lord, uh, once again, you, one of the great joys of a church like this is that you have wonderful godly leaders who can give input and, and help people think through things like this. And, and just, I think of, even at our church, I can think how every outreach ministry I, that I can think of was originated from some member who had a passion for that specific outreach. And I just pray that things like that would just continue to percolate in the minds and the hearts of the people here as we fix our eyes on Christ, as we consider how to walk our Christian walks. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, clear, helpful. Yeah, so as I, as I said, uh, hasn't been our intention uh, by any means to cover everything related to social justice and the gospel, but to cover what we, what we cover clearly and helpfully so that you can leave here and really begin to generate deeper, more biblical thinking about how to honor Christ, really about how to examine your own heart, right? I don't know that I've caught wind of this or sensed it in any sense that anybody in our church uh, has a problem with inter-ethnic marriage, but I'll tell you a quick story while you're thinking of your questions for the Q&A. When I was 19, my cousin uh, had married a black man, and I honestly didn't think anything of it. My mom had never nurtured ill will in situations like that, so we were in the kitchen. I was standing next to my favorite aunt, and as the children of that married couple ran through the kitchen. They were being a little loud, kind of like Barnett's. <laughs> and my, my aunt looked at me and grimaced. And uh, her name was Florence. She was a dear soul. I loved her so much. Uh, Lawrence was her husband's name, by the way. Florence and Lawrence. You can imagine <laughs> what kind of uproar that brought. Uh, they were a lot of fun. And uh, she shook her head, and I said, Aunt Florence, what's wrong? And she said, well... I just don't think that I can really agree with that. And I said, you know, I think you're right. Those kids should be much better behaved. And she said, that's not what I'm talking about. And of course, you know that I knew that's not what she was talking about. But for her to say that was, was so not just unacceptable, but truly repulsive. And so we had a short conversation. And I, th I, think, she changed, I think she changed her mind about that. I, I asked her what. How could that possibly be wrong? And I was by no means a faithful or mature Christian. I was probably a false convert, to tell you the truth. But I couldn't think of a good reason why there was something wrong with them having uh, been married. Neither of them were Christians, so that wasn't pertinent in the matter. So there may be someone in your life, maybe it's you, that's really struggling with this. And sadly, many people have been manipulated to think that because Israel was called to disassociate themselves from pagan nations... They forget the fact that Gentiles were grafted in. Amen. Right? Where did that come from? Were those exceptions? No, there was never an exception. When, as Han pointed out from Revelation 7, God has chosen people from every nation and tribe and tongue. We ought to think that way, not assuming that because of someone's ethnicity uh, that he or she is a lesser person. So, Okay, who has a question? Put your hand up. Okay, Bob, let me get you the mic. Hi. Um, somewhat related to what you're, you've been going through, the, a real hot issue uh, in the news and in various social contexts is the whole issue of immigration mm -hmm. yes. and what that means to us as, as a nation or some would say a sovereign nation. But how, how is, do we as Christians enter into discussions that quite often get heated about the issue of immigration, illegal immigration, undocumented, and all of that. 
And, yeah. and how do we treat that with, with, with Christ's love? It's an excellent question. And I would say, first and foremost, you know, in terms of your immediate everyday lives, again, we're, we're called to love people. We're called to care for people. And, and to the extent that there are needs we can meet and people we can care for and show them Christ's love and give them the gospel, by all means, we should do that. Now, separately, the government as an entity under Romans 13, as Todd knows, and we've had discussions in this in the past, you know, the, the government is there to, again, to protect the innocent, to, to uh, punish the evildoer, and to maintain a system of laws. And the closer that system of laws is to a biblical system of laws, I think the more benefit that society and country could receive. Uh, now, again, if you look at the nation of Israel, uh, if you look at even Paul in, in the book of, um, of Acts, he appeals to his Roman citizenship, you may recall. So there are, it's not like Paul is, is, is an advocate for, oh, you know, open borders type of, uh, you know, there is no such thing as citizenship or that there is some kind of world citizenship. There are tangible benefits that attach to citizens. And, you know, how, you, how a person obtains citizenship in this country have been, have been specifically regulated by the Constitution and certain laws. And so there are benefits that attach to that citizenship and a nation in its Romans 13 discretion can opt to you know, enforce and regulate immigration or its borders uh, as it chooses to do so. And so I think, obviously, again, to the extent that a government does something that is uh, clearly unjust or inhumane or, or anti-biblical, that's not a worthy thing for the government to do, and you know, we shouldn't hesitate to... You know, and again, you have to balance it here, because I think there's so much emotion on this issue, and there's so much tumult, really, that we're so prone, and we really run the risk of violating Titus, and I'm going to read this uh, verse to you just because I think it's so powerful. Titus 3, verses 1 and 2, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And I think there's a tendency to want to malign you know, people, uh, malign the government, malign political figures. And, you know, that's not what we're called to do as Christians. You know, we, that's not to say we can't express a respectful disagreement. We can. We have that freedom here in this country. But uh, just because this is such an emotional topic, I think we see a lot of uh, over-the-top vitriol, and that's not helpful. Does that answer your question? Okay. Um, what is your view on the churches that... Um emphasize a certain ethnicity, perhaps um, when the church was established, um, it was to help perhaps, let's say, Korean community or Chinese yeah. community. Um, but after the church has been established, and there's a lot of young people there, but they still hold to their own ethnicity. If you were to visit those churches, it's about 95 percent. Yeah. No, it's a great question. It's one I'm very intimately familiar with, too, as, uh, you know, this is very common in the Asian community. I, I have utmost sympathy for a language-based church, right? If you're trying to equip the saints and do the gospel, you can't do that if you don't understand each other. So churches based in a common language, look, I totally get that. I, I think you can start to develop issues when, uh, you know, again, ethnicity becomes so focused on, and you see this, frankly, for all different ethnicities, you see that in the South in certain white churches, you see that in certain black churches, you see that in certain Asian churches, even Latino churches. Uh, you know, I think there can be this tendency to uh, kind of uh, cluster sometimes. And uh, I think really the thing to consider is if you're a language-based church, again, I, I understand that, but to the extent that you start, um, you know, if you've got an English-based uh, Asian church, you know, is that church going to be welcoming and frankly, eager to welcome people that don't just look like them. You know, I think that really is so important. How, how hospitable are people to people that walk in the door that may not look like you? You know, I, I really think it's important to have a loving, impartially loving attitude that really is welcoming so that people feel like, oh, this is a place where even though, you know, maybe many of them look uh, similar to each other, I would feel comfortable worshiping here. One of the, some of the best experiences of my Christian life have been traveling internationally and seeing churches which have a very distinct ethnic flavor and maybe, you know, not a whole lot, maybe I might be the only Asian American person in there, but, uh, you know, just seeing the heart of love that was, was offered to me was just so moving and it showed me just so powerfully that we do have unity in the body of Christ. You even hear testimonies from people who do not speak the same language, and yet they go overseas, and, they, and yet they're received with such love. 
And you know, that is a powerful testimony of, of Christianity right there. So again, I think that the thing to emphasize is you're going to, you know, if it's a Korean-speaking church, and as an example, obviously most of the people there may speak Korean, but to the extent that, uh, you know, there is an English portion of the congregation, you know, how, how, how uh, welcoming uh, and loving uh, is that group to people that don't look like the dominant group? Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, when you spoke of the Tower of Babel and their language con was confounded, what well, you said something about it having to do with the people humbling themselves? Oh, well, uh, the whole, obviously, when people were trying to construct the Tower of Babel to go up to be, you know, to the heavens themselves, right. that, that was a prideful act, and God humbled them oh, by, okay. by virtue of this act that dispersed them and confused the languages and scattered, and people ended up, uh, you know, congregating into common language areas, which, uh, you know, was one of the rise of. You know, it's a descriptive example of how this all arose due to man's pride. Mm -hmm. But just because that happened in Scripture, again, some racist groups try to use that as a justification for racism. Exactly. And that's inappropriate. Mm -hmm. You know, again, we saw it, you know, you can't just, that's the folly of using a descriptive example in Scripture and then trying to extend and stretch that to uh, a biblical command. And right. that's not the case. We saw it again in the examples of Moses marrying a Cushite woman. Right. Yeah, so. All right, that was good. Thank you, because I've been told that it was separating the people because they didn't want to be together, separate them by their language, their color, and that was our lesson to uh, stay separate and yeah. not join together. Yeah, so thank you. No, and I would even say, look, even in the old, you can look at one people that there, a lot of, one mistake a lot of people make is, is not properly interpreting the Old Testament. Uh, and I think there's a lot of situations, Israel was supposed to be set apart as a light to the nations. And so they did receive special favor in the Old Testament and, and during those times. But if you look at the New Testament, just you see the Jew and the Greek together. And, and, they're, and like Todd was saying, just that grafting in, and you see unity. So even if there may have been some arguments a person could make under the ancient civil system of Israel, and you could, even then it was, you know, you have to take it in the proper context. I just see so much misinterpretation of the Old Testament in this discussion, and it grieves me because it's like, it's almost as if, don't you understand that we are all one in Christ Jesus? Thank you. It's a great question. Uh, Brother Han, I just want to say, I'm over here. <laughs> Sorry. Um, my name is Dale. I don't know if you remember Yeah, me, I do absolutely remember you, Dale. Yes. Yep. Um, I, I've, Dale. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I've always greatly enjoyed your sermon, so thank you for coming down and, oh, it's and a joy for me preaching to us. Thank you. Um, my question is, uh, I, I come from a culture where uh, professional success, as well as who you marry into, uh, is kind of common. Sure. Um, you know, I, I have an army of, on my mom's side, I have an army of doctors, um, and I was kind of expected to follow that. Sure. And become a doctor, yep. and then either marry a Filipina doctor or marry a nurse, and um, that pressure was pretty strong for sure. a while. Sure, yep. Um, so my question is, have you ever faced any sort of ostracizing or resistance or maybe a different mindset in your family for uh, who you wanted to marry versus who you're supposed to marry as well as uh, where uh, she comes from, you know, professionally and then background and so on and so forth. And how did you respond to that? Did you cut them off? Do you still talk to them? Or is no. there somewhere in between? It's I'm sure you question. understand because you No, I, I totally <laughs> get it. Believe me. Okay. I, uh, okay. Both. Thank you. My, my mother, my father passed away in 1995 and my father passed away in 2005, but uh, my dad was adamant that I needed to marry a Korean woman. And after he died in 95, my mom was more relaxed on that. But after he died, she kind of felt the need to take up the torch for my late father. And so she, uh, you know, also, you know, really was insistent upon that. Um, I wasn't a believer, so, uh, you know, I just kind of like, look, uh, love's hard enough to find without arbitrarily limiting yourself to a subset of the population. So <laughs> I, 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 I'm sorry, I'm just not, I'm not going to go there, Mom. But she, uh, um, she, uh, she really... Um, you know, her, her viewpoint changed and she lightened up quite a bit after she got saved in 2000, 2001. And then, uh, yeah, after God saved me in 2004, it was in the last couple months of her life, actually. Uh, so I didn't get that sense at that point in time. But I see it 
all the time, Dale. I mean, like, again, I, I, there's a reason why I said, sadly, from my perception, it can be worse in the Asian community to see this opposition to interethnic marriage. And it's just, um, I see it, with the, we have a really big, vibrant ministry, the Grace on Campus UCLA ministry uh, through our Crossroads College and Career Ministry. And just so many of those kids are laboring under the same types of expectations of their parents, which are, you have to, you know, do well. Education's call it career success or an idol. Uh, you have, yeah, and, and a lot of times, it's not even, you have to marry an Asian. It's like, you need to marry a Korean or you need to marry a, marry a Chinese person. And look, um, the thing I would say is, yes, you want to honor your parents and be patient with them, but if your parents are in sin, then it's not loving to just continue to indulge them in that sin. And I think you have to kind of like patiently, lovingly, you know, if they're non-believers, and of course, uh, you know, you can't expect them to act like believers, but there's a lot of professing Christian parents who even would kind of adopt this stance. Uh, there's even one situation, you know, just it was really grievous. And, you know, the ones that at least profess the name of the Lord, uh, you know, need to be shown the scriptures and say, look, this is sinful. And um, at the end of the day, um, you know, I think that, you, you know, we have presided over, uh, Grace Church elders and pastors have presided over marriages where the parents did not consent. Um, and that is, in particular, if the parents' lack of consent was based on a sinful kind of viewpoint, uh, you know, we don't, again, we want to be patient with them, but we don't, that, that's not a veto in any way, shape, or form. Does that help answer your question? All right. Well, uh, we're going to have to cut off the Q&A there. We want to move on to the Lord's table. Uh, how perfect, huh, after having Amen. heard such a clear expression of how we ought to think about and treat one another to move into a, a time of observing the Lord's table and ensuring that uh, insofar as it depends upon you, that we are each all uh, right with every person 